Welcome to the 138th episode of The Goods, a film podcast. As always, I am joined with my friend and compatriot, Brian. Are you out there, Brian? I'm here. We're just knocking on the door of the 139th episode spectacular. <laughs> that was the Simpsons special, right? Is that the Simpsons? Yeah, yeah. Nice. Uh, that would have been a good on-theme one for us to do, but I think we're going to wait till 150. Right. So we are in the midst of a theme month. Movies about making movies month, except it's really more than a month. We have basically made it a double month at this point because there are just so many damn movies about making movies out there. There really are a lot. And it, it's a it's a fruitful topic to talk about. Uh, there's a lot of different angles at which movies analyze and depict themselves, I would say, or their construction. And this week I decided to bring two works by the filmmaker Wes Anderson. And one of them is about the making of a fictional documentary. And one of them is about the making of a play, but I actually would contend is very much a reflection of Anderson's own filmmaking and how he thinks about how he makes his movies, or at least how he thinks about how people think about him making his movies. We can deconstruct it. Right, because the thing that they call a play is the movie that we're watching, but also it, like, couldn't possibly be a play. Like, there's cars driving around. It's just almost incomprehensible. I thought it went almost too far into the West Andersonianness. Well, we can, we can uh, debrief that as we kind of go through it, because the two films are... The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, a 2004 film by Anderson, and Asteroid City from this year, 2023, by Anderson, his most recent film, and his 11th feature-length film. So Life Aquatic was his fourth. Asteroid City is his 11th. Crazy that Life Aquatic's almost 20 years old already. I know, yeah. it Because it, in some ways, it just feels more modern than... Plenty of films from that era, but I think the fact that it like is very bespoke and is very bespoke in its aesthetic and Bill Murray already sort of looks old in it just makes it feel like more present day. I don't know, something like that. Right. So, yeah, two films about the process of making a film or a play. Brian, what is your experience with Wes Anderson prior to this week? Really, the only one that I had seen was Moonrise Kingdom, which I think is still my favorite. I really, really like Moonrise Kingdom. I know you do, too. It came up in our favorite movies list episode. Yeah. Yeah, I love Moonrise Kingdom. Easily in my top 100 movies, I've given it a 
toward a good masterpiece rating on uh, my review website. I think I had it at something crazy high, like number 23 or something in my uh, top 100 films list that we made several months ago. And I saw that in 2012 when I was doing film for undergrad because people were talking about, oh, the new Wes Anderson is coming. <laughs> and I had no idea what that meant. But I went out to the art house theater in DC to see it before it had the wider release. Nice. That's awesome. I saw a film in college that was my first Wes Anderson film on a limited release before it went wide release as well, except that one was the Darjeeling limited, which was his fifth film two before moonrise kingdom. So I was like a sophomore in college and it must've been your senior year when you went to go see moonrise. So Five years apart, even though we were both in college. But uh, I've seen every Wes Anderson movie. I really, really like him. He's one of my favorite directors, just period. And I might even go so far as to say he might be the greatest director of the past 25 years. If you go back 25 years this year, that includes his second through his 11th films. So that's 10 films that, uh, I mean, not to spoil my rating, but I don't have any of his films lower than a six on the Is It Good scale. I have uh, two masterpieces. I have, I think, seven, no, six exceptionally goods and three very goods among his movies. It's something like that. It might be six and four between the exceptionally goods and the very goods, but I think he's both been very prolific. He gets one out every two to three to four years, which for someone who has like such a tightly controlled style, I think that's kind of insane that he churns them out as fast as he does. But he also just has a really unique style that I just find very engaging. His movies are funny, but like in kind of a unique wry and deadpan sort of way. And I think the best of his movies. So the two movies I think are masterpieces that he's made are Moonrise Kingdom and Rushmore for his second film from 1998. Well, first, they're both about kids. Uh, Rushmore is a high school movie and Moonrise Kingdom is about tweens uh, who fall in love. But I think in general, in his movies, especially his best ones, underneath like the intense style and the deadpan humor and the very dry writing you have a real sense of empathy and uh, just kindness and warmth towards its characters that really kind of manifests in touching ways. So, yeah, um, terrific filmmaker, and I'm glad that we're finally getting the chance to talk about him. I feel like he has a lot of fun making his movies, and some of his decisions seem like just for the hell of it, which I kind of really respect. I agree, and it's like he kind of does the same thing like, he doesn't really push... Well, let me think about the right way to say this. He kind of just goes deeper into his own style. So I would say every one of his movies is adventurous in some new way, pushes his boundaries in some way. The one film that honestly seems no more adventurous than the previous one is The Darjeeling Limited, which was his fifth one. And that remains one of the ones that people consider one of his down moments. I absolutely love it. I think it's terrific, but I think it's kind of doing stuff that he's mostly done before. But pretty much every subsequent movie really feels like it's kind of challenging him in some way or like pushing his intense dollhouse stylized aesthetic 
to a new extreme with like intense painterly compositions and very bespoke whimsical feeling to it but like not whimsical might not be the right word because his films usually tackle at least a little bit of darkness and like um mature tough material there's death stuff dollhouse is the word i was about to use it's like he's manipulating like he dumped out his toy box and he's moving the little pieces around and dollhouse is a good word because often there's like tracking shots that go through the walls like a room doesn't have all of its walls you can walk walk from one into the next and follow the actors yeah and he does like he has a bunch of like tricks that are they're not even tricks they're like just techniques that he uses in a very specific way so one is the whip pan which is he'll be very still on a subject and then he'll very quickly turn the camera to something else. And it's usually another character doing a reaction shot or just something that's in juxtaposition to what we just saw. And the way that he times them is so good. He also has this this color sense. He's worked with the same cinematographer in all of his live action films, and they just are like on the same wavelength and they're like high on some sort of visual drug. I don't even know what it is. It's like but they they get just these really striking color palettes. It's like an ad in a fashion magazine or like, I don't know, each one feels like it's pulling from some source just in the colors alone. And then it's pretty crazy. And I feel like they must do something to up the saturation in the editing or something because they're really vibrant and often, I think, a lot of yellow. There's like a specific hipster movie poster yellow that's not exclusive to Wes Anderson. You know, you see it on the Little Miss Sunshine poster and like, I don't know, those kinds of Mm -hmm. movies. Yeah, and I think you should go, Brian, if you haven't seen it, you probably haven't, but he made a short called Hotel Chevalier that... um, ties in with the Darjeeling Limited and that entire movie is that specific color of yellow. And one of the top rated uh, comments on that short on Letterboxd is, I think Wes Anderson wants to fuck the color yellow and I think we should let him or something like that. (laughs) I actually have seen that one. Oh, you have? Nice, yeah. I think we discussed that recently. I just didn't bring it up when we were talking features. Gotcha, yeah. I don't think I've seen all his shorts. I think that's the only one of his shorts I've seen. Oh, I saw his, I think it was Sundance. I can't remember if it was Sundance or South by Southwest, but whatever film festival he was in where he got his contract back in the 90s when they were tossing out contracts to indie filmmakers left and right, that got us a whole bunch of our great directors of the past 20, 25 years, including uh, Quentin Tarantino, P.T. Anderson, etc. He was part of that wave. And um, anyways, he made a short called Bottle Rocket that got turned into his first film, Bottle Rocket, which I recently reviewed on The Goods, my website. But anyways, yeah, so one other thing about his his style is that I think this is going to be especially relevant to Asteroid City, but he doesn't really use depth of field or like his his shots are designed to be flat and stage-like, and I've said painterly, like the feeling of looking at like a visual painting come to life. It's like the way he composes everything spatially is, he, it's always, it feels flat, which usually is like a negative thing, 
but he does it in such an interesting and unique way. Also, it doesn't use the typical rule of thirds. A lot of stuff is also dead center and split evenly in half. Right. I should uh, mention now that, I mean, ever since he started, he's been controversial with a lot of fanboys like me and then a lot of haters and then a lot of people like spoofing his style. But two things recently have have really um, gotten a lot of of attention. One is because he kind of uses those symmetrical compositions and kind of very distinct style. It's been an early target of like AI generating parodies of his stuff like, oh, here is AI generating what Lord of the Rings might look like in a Wes Anderson style or something like that. And then another one is the in TikTok. A lot of people have been doing my life as a Wes Anderson film where, again, they kind of do take some of his ticks and construct their own little version of it. And I mean, they kind of get some of the stuff, but it's kind of hard because on the one hand, they're right. He does have like these things that he just does over and over again. But on the other hand, he does them with such depth and precision and artistry that I I get somewhat defensive when I see people like just reducing his filmmaking style to like a few ticks because I think it works really well in in storytelling and in general. Right. My thought is that the AI gets it more correct than the TikTok kids. Like the TikTok shorts that I've seen, it's like this doesn't really feel like the movies. Yeah, we could and I happily would spend hours talking about exactly what some of the Wes Anderson like tropes are, because he's got a million of them, stuff that he repeats, actors he pulls in more about his form, just because it's so precise. It's like a he's a filmmaker. It's very easy to get into the techniques he's using and both with sound and then obviously the visuals we've talked about, the direction, like another thing he's gotten into recently, kind of like this. When I say recently, it's really been emphasized in the past few films is the rotating camera it's like a group of people and the camera is in the middle and it kind of rotates and you see all of the people who are kind of in a group discussing like there's a really great one of those in asteroid city when the there's some kid characters who are kind of all in a circle and it kind of does the whip pan thing but it like doesn't just do it one time it like does it in a whole loop basically pretty interesting but um he also is known for like really interesting soundtracks he really likes 60s and 70s rock And he often has international foreign language covers and unusual covers of well-known songs, which we see in Life Aquatic. But yeah, uh, in that one, it's David Bowie. They actually, one of the actors is actually a musician and he does, I forget what language it is. I think it's uh, Portuguese covers of David Bowie songs, which is fun. But yeah, I could talk about these things for hours, but why don't we, we're here to talk about two specific movies, Brian. That is Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, which I was actually that one and Isle of Dogs and French Dispatch. I had not seen this past week. So I actually watched three Wes Anderson movies this past week just so I could be complete coming into this week's episode. I had seen Asteroid City a couple months ago. And who did Fantastic Mr. Fox? Was that the Coen brothers? No, that that was Anderson. That was Wes Anderson. Okay, so I've seen that one too. And that's got that same yellow on the poster. That one's more of an orange though. He That one, it's really got like some autumnals, oranges and reds and stuff. That one, 
is one of his two stop motion movies. The other being Isle of Dogs, which I think you should see, Brian. I kept thinking of you when I was watching Isle of Dogs. There's a lot of really interesting stuff um, in that one. So that's my recommendation for the one I think you should go see. Okay. It's kind of got like an interesting uh, post-apocalyptic vibe to it because the premise is that um, in Japan, they determine that dogs are contagious with a dog flu. And so they send all the dogs to an island. And so we follow all the dogs on this island as well as what's kind of going on in the main human land. But like where the, the, the dog island, the Isle of Dogs, very much feels like a post-apocalyptic wasteland. And because it's all in Japan, there's like lots of kaiju and samurai and, and just a lot of interesting pastiches in there. But anyways, I keep getting off track with the selections of the day. So let's talk first about the one that he made earlier. That was Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. So this one follows Steve Zissou, who is played by Bill Murray. So Bill Murray is one of the main people who reappear in Wes Anderson's movies. I think he's has a role in nine of the 11 films. The only two that he is not in are the very first one and Asteroid City. Apparently he couldn't be in Asteroid City because of some COVID protocols or something. Also, that was around the time that Bill Murray went through some quote unquote getting canceled problems for a few different incidents. So, um, but supposedly that was not a role in his not being a part of the, the film. It was, it was just a scheduling thing. I was wondering why he was absent when everyone else on the planet is in the movie. <laughs> yeah. And Steve Zuso is essentially Jacques Cousteau. So Brian, how familiar are you with Jacques Cousteau? Very little, honestly. I mean, I knew he was a personality who explored the oceans and was like an environmental popularizer. Like a, you know, like an earlier Neil deGrasse Tyson or whatever. Like a media figure who championed scientific exploration. Yeah, not just that, but like getting the community at large on board. And he like made a ton of TV documentaries and shows and stuff. And I don't think I've seen much of his stuff, if any of his stuff, but definitely a figure I've heard of. And like... Jacques Cousteau, our character Steve Zuso, he's an oceanographer and a documentary filmmaker. But when we find him at the start of the film, he is in the midst of a personal and professional decline of sorts. So he's married to this woman who is kind of his research partner named Eleanor, and she's played by Angelica Houston. Um, but their their marriage is kind of falling apart. It's lost its spark and they do not have any children. What movies do you know Angelica Houston from, Dan? Um, ooh, that's a good question. What do I know her from? I'm not sure. I'd have to look up her filmography. Nothing on the top of my head, but I probably do. What about you, Brian? Well, she was Morticia Adams in the theatrical movies from the 90s, and she was also uh, the scary lead witch in the Roald Dahl Witches movie. Okay. Wait, the Roald Dahl... Is that the one... Netflix remade it recently, not that one, the older one. Well, not just Netflix. Zemeckis was the director of that one. Oh, of the new yeah, one? Yeah, of the new one. I think. Huh. He might have directed the old one. I'm going to look it up. The Witches, 1990, directed by Nicholas Regg. 
produced by Jim Henson. Okay, so maybe maybe uh, the other guy did the new one. Yeah, oh, Zemeckis. Did he, but I'm trying to remember if he made the new one. Yes, 2020, The Witches, Robert Zemeckis. That one has Anne Hathaway in the part. I knew there was a Zemeckis movie with Anne Hathaway that was a Roald Dahl adaptation that I watched a few months ago, but I couldn't remember if it was The Witches or another one of the Roald Dahls, but... So sometimes people use the term scare-oused by, like, an uh, actress or character who is scary but also attractive, which is not a sensation I'm too familiar with, but Anne Hathaway and the witches inspired that in me. Scare-ousel. <laughs> Anyways, so that's his personal life. And then his professional life, He's made he just made this documentary which concludes with an off-screen shark attack of Steve's best friend and part of his diving team. And it's very upsetting to Steve, but it's like, it doesn't make for interesting footage because they don't actually see the shark. They just see Steve really upset at the end. And apparently, which I don't know, I thought I was like moved by his, him being upset. Bill Murray, I think, does a pretty good performance here. Like he gets pretty emotional, but he's also pretty funny. Um, and he gets to be kind of sleazy in that Bill Murray way plenty of times, too. He's like an alcoholic throughout and stuff. What do you think of his performance, Brian? Yeah, I agree. Good overall. This moment in the documentary that they made, though, like they kind of have speculation. Oh, did the partner really die here? Like, is there something mysterious going on? Because, you know, they blame Bill Murray blames this leopard shark that nobody else has ever seen and up to this point you know you're thinking well i've never heard of a leopard shark that sounds made up <laughs> but little do we know that all the animals in this movie are are like fantastic animals exactly yeah it's it's kind of funny as the movie goes you're like i've never heard of that creature i've never heard of that creature oh wait all these creatures are made up it's like okay that's the that's the thing that they're yeah doing. by the way um, a bunch of the creatures are filmed in stop motion, like mini stop motion vignettes done by Henry Selleck, the guy who did um, Nightmare Before Christmas and Coraline and plenty of others, which I thought was a pretty cool touch. Yeah. Yeah, it had that vibe. And I was also thinking, I was trying to place, what's another series that I've seen where it has the like factual style presentation but everything that they're saying is slightly off and not real. And did you ever read the Mulvania books, Dan? I don't think so. What are those? Okay, so in the, like, albino black sheep, Newgrounds, early days of the internet, there was this music video that circulated by a pop musician called Zlad. Z-L-A-D. And Zlad was like the Eurovision competitor from Mulvania. And it was all like a, a viral ad campaign for this this book. And I don't know if they were planning to make a movie or something that never came together, but it was like a fake travelogue that you could go to the bookstore and get this travelogue to Mulvania, which was this like pseudo Eastern European country. So just a bunch of like wall to wall stereotypes played for comic effective things that you'll see if you go to Mulvania. Oh, like Borat. <laughs> and then they put out like a whole line of these books of different areas of the world, like fake countries. Oh, that's, that's actually kind of fun. Although, yeah, you lead into stereotypes, I guess. But yeah. Right. 
And so we also see that Steve has a rival played by Jeff Goldblum, uh, this guy named Alistair Hennessy. And he kind of pops in and out of the rest of the movie. I always like seeing Jeff Goldblum appear. He actually, did you see what role he played in Asteroid City, Brian? I did. Yeah. It's a blink and you'll miss it thing. Yeah, we'll get to that, I guess. But anyway, now Steve Zissou is determined to make the follow-up film to his documentary. And so the rest of the movie is going to basically be following his attempt to make his next documentary, a follow-up to the one in which his friend gets eaten by a, I think you said leopard shark. I'm pretty sure it's jaguar shark. I'm not 100% sure. I would definitely mix that up. Oh, that sounds right. That sounds right. There might actually be a leopard shark. Gotcha. And during it was like an interview or something, someone says, what would be the scientific purpose of killing it? It being the shark that ate his friend. And Steve simply says, revenge, which I thought was a good moment. Good line. So, yeah, you've got a Moby Dick aspect to it, too. Oh, yeah, man. Moby Dick. But there's also, I don't know, like, it just feels a little bit like a great American novel, even beyond the Moby Dick. There's kind of some Gatsby in here, even like the the great light that he's searching for, too. I don't know. Definitely some of that that stuff going on in this film. But I think you're right. Moby, Moby Dick is pretty spot on. Because uh, he's, he's searching for not his white whale, but his his spotted shark. So two interesting thing happen. Two interesting things happen as he's about to start filming his new documentary. The first is a pregnant but single reporter named Jane, played by Kate Blanchett. Brian, kind of earlier before she was like perennial Oscar favorite, Kate Blanchett doing a less affected voice than I normally think of her having in her roles. How much Kate Blanchett have you seen? Yeah. So at first I didn't recognize her for one. It threw me off that the movie's 20 years old, even though it feels more recent than that, but also like how she's got her hair or something makes her features softer than she tends to do. So I actually thought it was Gwyneth Paltrow the first time I saw her. Cause she, I don't know. She's kind of got hair like in the Iron Man movies that the way Gwyneth Paltrow has it, like the reddish hair. Yeah. Gwyneth Paltrow is in actually another one of Wes Anderson's films, the Royal Tenenbaums. But, uh, as it went along, I'm like, no, wait a minute. I guess this was around the same time as like the Lord of the Rings movies with Kate Blanchett, where she was the, the elf queen. And beyond that, I mean, I've seen some other Kate Blanchett movies. Like we talked recently, Crystal Skull. She was in Tar last year, which was one of my top five movies of last year. Okay, so that was her in Tar. That wasn't the other one, Tilda Swinton? No. Okay. Tilda Swinton is in Asteroid City, though. <laughs> All right, I was going to say, I was going to say, and I watched Tar, but I thought that was Tilda Swinton. Gotcha. I thought her performance was incredible. Definitely one of the top three performances of last year for me, although... Mia Goth and Pearl was absolutely my favorite performance last year. I, I'm going to bring X and Pearl and probably the third one, whenever that comes out of that, that mini slasher trilogy that that is recent to talk about those movies at some point to the pod. Um, so anyways, there's this reporter. And then there's also this man who played by Owen Wilson named Ned Plimpton. So Owen Wilson and Wes Anderson go way, way back, Brian. They were actually college roommates and they made their first couple movies together. Owen Wilson has writing credits on, I think, the first three movies that uh, Wes Anderson made. 
And like their first film, first couple films were basically Owen Wilson and Luke Wilson vehicles. And for a while, it kind of seemed like Owen Wilson was going to be the the more famous, the the big kind of breakaway talents of that grouping. You know what I have to say to that, Dan? What? Wow. Wow. Yeah. I, <laughs> I like Owen Wilson. He's really funny. I don't. I think he's like an underappreciated comic presence. Oh yeah, I think he, I think he's terrific. I think he's a good actor too. I mean, I think he, he tends towards the funny, but he can do other stuff pretty well too. I think you find a lot of comedians are also really good actors. Like I don't know, I've just always been impressed that how smart and talented really good comedians are too. Like if you ever hear even like Andy Samberg, if you've listened to him in interviews, he gives off the dopiest presence in his movies. But he's just really like smart and well-read and articulate when you hear him talk. I mean, of course, like Bill Hader and Paul Rudd, just incredibly talented and smart. Anyways, uh, Ned, played by Owen Wilson, claims to be Steve's son from one of his previous relationships by a woman who very recently died. And Steve decides to bring Ned into the crew um, Ned's a little bit reluctant, but he eventually agrees and he even offers some of his money to get the project going because Steve is having a hard time getting the funding going. So getting Ned and getting that money is enough to get the, the journey started. At the start of his journey, Steve kind of makes the moves on Jane, the reporter, and it kind of seems like that's the reason that he let her onto the, the trip because he kind of has the hots for 34 year old Kate Blanchett. And I do not blame him. But she very much rebuffs him. On the other hand, she and Ned basically immediately fall for each other and they spend the rest of the movie sort of hiding their growing relationship from Steve, who cottons on pretty quickly. And Eleanor, his wife, refuses to join the journey and she goes back to Hennessy, the rival played by Jeff Goldblum, who is also one of her ex-lovers in addition to being Steve's rival. And so over the course of the movie, we kind of get to know this crew that's on this journey to find the jaguar shark and uh, a lot of uh, fun presences. But by far, the highlight for me is Klaus, played by Willem Dafoe. Did you enjoy Dafoe in this, Brian? Yeah, he might have been my favorite part of the movie just because he like really wants Bill Murray to be his dad when I could not (laughs) tell how far apart their ages were. Mm hmm. It's like Will, Willem Dafoe looks pretty old too. Yeah, but yeah, he's got like he's got these these little short pants and the beanie <laughs> hat, so he's like a little boy, but he's Willem Dafoe with a German accent. <laughs> yeah, dude, he's talking in that German accent. Accent is pretty funny. You mentioned the beanie hats, and one thing I didn't say in my overview of Anderson is that. He has absolutely incredible production throughout all of his films, especially like props and costumes and stuff. Just it's like a a feast for the eyes. And can you describe some of the costumes and and production details we see on this boat, Brian? Oh, sure. So the team uniform is everybody's got these sky blue jackets and red beanie hats. And I think most of them are in shorts. But then even beyond that there's interesting costumes like ned arrives to the ship and he's got a pilot uniform 
he says he works for Kentucky Airlines. So <laughs> then he's got all this like stationery and like a special leather bag. It's got all monograms for Kentucky Airlines, which is completely manufactured, just spun from whole cloth. It's all bespoke, as Dan has said a couple times. Uh, and then the ship itself has this dollhouse thing going on. And because it's a documentary, we have several like cutaway narrator segments, which happens in a lot of these movies. All the Wes Anderson movies I've seen have this, that like a narrator will pop in and explain something. It was definitely in Moonrise Kingdom. But here, when they're first about to like get on the boat, Bill Murray gives a little narrated tour and we get shots where the camera tracks from room to room and it's like all open like a dollhouse or an ant farm and some of the things that are in here there's like dolphins that are trained to go out and like spy except once they get used later in the movie they're like ineffectual they, they don't actually work this made me laugh so hard this was probably my biggest laugh of the movie is they talk about how they have these trained dolphins but they don't do anything on command. They just float, swim around their own volition. And they, <laughs> there's a scene where they try to tell them what to do. And I forget exactly what the line is, but it's they're saying, well, they're not they don't seem to be doing it. And they pretty much never do. And I, I don't know. This is making me laugh. <laughs> yeah, they're like, well, all right. Yeah, very cool design. It's kind of a almost a meme at this point that every new Wes Anderson movie is the most Wes Anderson movie yet. But I think a lot of people point to Steve Zissou as like an inflection point where Wes, Wes Anderson was like, all right, I'm just going to make my movies my own dang thing and I'm going to lean into my own style. Whereas his previous movies had kind of hedged a little bit and felt a, li a little bit more location shooting, a little bit um, less dollhousey. Whereas pretty much every subsequent one, with maybe the exception of Darjeeling Limited, really just feel like they're all in on his whatever he wants to take his style for that film. So one of the first things they do on the trip is they need more equipment to make the film. So Steve leads a heist, his crew on a heist of the equipment from his rival Hennessy ships. He just like immediately goes and steals all of his rivals equipment. This was my favorite part of the movie. I think that they go to this sea platform and you know, the crew is like, are we supposed to be here? And Bill Murray says, like, there's a brotherhood of the sea. <laughs> Everyone is welcome. And then he opens the door and it sets off a bunch of alarms. <laughs> and this is where I'll say I was really vibing with these movies for the most part. And so I'm taking a class right now that I have to write the first like really long script that I've had to write. And I right now, like by the end of the week, I got to come up with what it's about. And I have a list of like little line item ideas, like the germs of ideas, a movie about such and such. And I, one of them on the list was movie about isolated sea platform. And that's what I was leaning towards. And I watched this movie. It's like, okay, all right, well, Wes Anderson has done it. And then <laughs> further on down the list, I have movie about nuclear test site in american southwest oh no it's like oh all right <laughs> let us know what you end up choosing i want to read whatever script you end up writing brian i don't think i ever read the one that that won your award yeah you gotta still read the last one i sent you wait did you actually send it to me i thought i forwarded it to you maybe not 
but I'll double check. Yeah, I'd definitely read it. What was the topic of the one that won the award for you, Brian? It was about lobsters from outer space. Wasn't it also like a teen beach spoof too? Or a beach party? That's exactly right. So, yes, bits from the beach party films, specifically teen beach. Also, Lost Skeleton of Cadavra. Also, Pocahontas slash Avatar slash Fern Gully, since that's all the same movie. Right. Interesting. Cool. I'll, I'll definitely re-forward it to me. I'll read it. I will. So then afterwards, so now they've stolen all this stuff and Steve is determined to get to the shark as quickly as possible. And so he orders his crew to go through unprotected waters, which, you know, is going to go poorly. There's also this crew of interns and like one of the interns or maybe she's one of the crew members. I can't remember is like pushing back against him, like really shouldn't do this. But he he, uh, insists that they do. And of course, they get kidnapped. They get attacked by pirates like instantly when they go in there. Maybe it's not instantly. There's like one scene of like checking in on the drama of all the characters within. And then it happens. And part of it is that, like I said, um, his son has been hitting it off with Jane. And when he's supposed to be on lookout duty, that's when the pirates come up. But what I thought was great was they've just robbed Hennessy, who has a ship and a crew. And so I thought it was them coming up. But then actually it's pirates. So that surprised me. But then they resolve. Well, there's there's a little more to it that we'll talk about. But it's like, oh, wait a minute. We can just blame the pirates on, you know, for the heist that happened that we did. Yeah, that was clever. It's It was kind of like the beat where um, Sean Connery shoots the tail off the, off his own plane with a machine gun. He says, I'm sorry, son. They got us. (laughs) It's like, Oh, the pirates got you too. (laughs) Right. So the, so the pirates get on board and at first it looks like they're going to take Ned, the, the Owen Wilson character hostage, but then they end up taking this other character who's been kind of hanging around and he's there for, the insurance company or the funding company. I forget, I think it's the people who are giving the funds to the movie, but he just keeps, keeps getting called bond company stooge as if that's his name by uh, Steve. And did you recognize this actor? No. Who was he? So I didn't recognize him, but this is Bud Court who played Harold in the movie, Harold and Maude. Oh, interesting. Which is a good movie. I've never seen it from a while back. He definitely, I mean, he plays a kid in, in Harold and Maude, like he's 20 years old. And now he's, at least in this movie, he's like completely bald and just unrecognizable. The ravages of age. But uh, Steve, inspired, at least in part by his protective instincts of his son and his crew as a whole, which is, I just want to briefly tangent on that. It's kind of interesting because like there's a theme here of fatherhood. And we kind of see some ways where he has kind of like tried to have some sense of being like a parent or a mentor. Like he has all these uh, interns and we learn that they're there for like college credit and he's taken various people under his wings like Willem Dafoe. There's clearly like a hole in his life here. So he kind of does have some of these paternal instincts, but he uh, he fights back against the pirates. He kind of there's a gag where every Part of being on his cruise, you get issued a standard Glock. And so he finally gets to use the Glock. It's like a Schrodinger's Glock. 
I think by Schrodinger's Glock, you are referring to Chekhov's gun. Oh, you're right. Not Schrodinger's cat. That's Chekhov's gun. Chekhov's Glock. Good correction on that. <laughs> Listener's like, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> I'm glad you, you could follow my logic there, Brian. Well, you got me. Turns out the leopard shark is a real shark. The jaguar shark is the one in this film. The pirates kind of run away, and but they still do take Bond Company stooge with them. But now I forget exactly why they're like out of fuel or something, but they they're stuck. They're stranded. And so Steve has to call to Hennessy to, to Goldblum, who he robbed like three scenes ago to come tow him out of the waters, which they do and bring him back to port. And the port is where Jeff Goldblum's like uh, HQ is. And so Steve uh, convinces his wife, who is hanging out there, to come back with him. And by the way, this whole time, Hennessy is unsuspecting of Steve having heisted his equipment. But Eleanor, uh, his wife, rejoins him and they decide they're going to go rescue the, the stooge, the Bond Company stooge. I also like that the places have the made-up names, too. Like, their ports of call all have just slightly off location names. Like, they sound like they could totally be real, but you're like, I've never heard of that before. So they go to Port Al Patois is, I think, where Jeff Goldblum is based, which, you know, sounds like Port-au-Prince. And, you know, they speak Patois in the Caribbean. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's good. I didn't even catch that, but you're right. The one, the Wes Anderson movie that does the most of that thing, where it's a lot like a thing, but not quite the thing, which I really enjoy. I think it's clever, especially if you can kind of mix and match some of these uh, ideas into something more that, that's more than just like a one-to-one parody. But I, for some reason, if it's all fictional stuff, I just find that kind of interesting. Um, it's like that thing you do where they have all the fictional music and uh, record labels and stuff. But anyways, um, uh, his... Most recent one before Asteroid City is called The French Dispatch, which I just saw this week. And in that, like everything is a stand in for a, a real thing. So the the French French Dispatch is basically uh, the New Yorker. Is that what it's called? Is it New, New York magazine? I think it's the New Yorker. Whatever that artsy one is that people have like the totes that have the fake covers on them. And like a lot of the characters in there are blending the lives of two real reporters or something. So anyways, en route to their rescue, a few facts emerge about the characters. So one is that there's been this whole thing where Steve was kind of surprised to learn he had a son, but we discovered that he actually knew from the day that Ned was born that he had a son. But the second thing is that we learned that from Eleanor, Steve's wife, that he is actually infertile and incapable of having kids. And therefore, Ned isn't his biological son. There's, I mean, there's, it's not quite so locked in that this is true, but my reading was we're supposed to think that Ned is not actually his biological son. Was that your takeaway too, Brian? I was a little thrown for a loop by that because somebody was Ned's father. Ned exists, but yes... I mean, I guess we don't have any reason to disbelieve Angelica Houston. Yeah. So I guess there there is some ambiguity, but it's just kind of like heightening and twisting around the whole theme of like parenthood as opposed to adoptive and uh, forced upon parenthood. 
and things and and kind of all those layers that that's going on in these relationships. But they do get to the place where the the pirates are located. So I think there's Filipino, but I I wasn't exactly sure where this was supposed to be. If this was supposed to be in the Philippines or in somewhere else, but they go in to, to rescue the guy. And I think they might also be trying to recover some of their stuff. I'm not hundred percent sure. I, I can't remember, but when they get there, it turns out that now Hennessy and his crew have been attacked and abducted by aliens or not aliens. That's the next movie uh, abducted by pirates. And, uh, it looks like I, my reading was they've killed most of Hennessy's crew, Jeff Goldblum's crew, because you see graves with their hats. Right. So, yeah, they, they show up at this island where they're, you know, going to confront the pirates and they, they find the like the Hennessy boat wrecked. And then there's a bunch of yeah gravestones with these little sailor hats with H's on them. And this uh, going back to the pirates is like very much kind of mirroring the revenge thread, like giving him his first chance at revenge, which is like been the big driving thing for Steve in making the, the movie. But he ends up uh, rescuing Hennessy as well as Bond Company Stooge. And the one thing that he loses is he had got this dog, this three legged dog that he called Cody from the pirates and Cody stays on the island and I found it very touching. He says, goodbye, Cody, and sails off. And so obviously everything has gone sour and they're about to give up on the documentary filming. But Ned convinces Steve that they should do one last search for the Jaguar shark in this helicopter that they have that has been purported to be in, in dubious condition. But they go and they take it out. And the helicopter crashes and Ned, the the son, the Owen Wilson character, dies here. I was not expecting him to die, Brian. Me neither. This was brutal. Yeah. I was like, oh, no, because I thought it was going to be hev- happily ever after with him and Jane together at the end of the movie. Then here we are like 20 minutes before the end and he dies. Yeah, he did not have a good run of it. I felt bad for Owen Wilson this whole movie. It's like he spent all his money. He really got suckered into coming along on this journey. I mean, he was for it because he wanted to bond with Bill Murray, but Bill Murray was definitely using him. And now he's like all chopped up in this helicopter crash. Yeah. But shortly afterwards, they have a little, little funeral and they do detect the shark at last. And they go and chase him down in this little submarine submersible type thing. And the whole crew goes with him. So we get this really neat shot of like all of the characters kind of stacked like dolls one row after the other. And so this was on like either the DVD case or the poster. This is an image I had seen a lot. So I was expecting that a lot of the movie they'd be in this little submarine. But no, it's just this bit here at the end. But it felt, you know, timely tiny submersibles oh that's right because we just had the whole titanic vessel people going to look at the titanic oh we got to buy tickets to that titanic show brian okay uh if it hasn't already sold out hopefully it hasn't because uh we're in the, the dc area and at national harbor which is just outside of dc they have this um traveling titanic exhibit and like partial recreation and it's only for a limited time. So I think Brian and I should go see it. Sounds like a plan. But uh, now that he has this chance for revenge, he decides not to kill the Jaguar shark, which, by the way, we do see it. And it is very real. It's like huge and very colorful and bright. And it's like 
given the early skepticism that even existed, is like very cinematic and exciting, which is a, a funny kind of mini twist that he was right all along about what it was. Then we kind of cut to the end of the movie, uh, the debut of the film. And this time it's a huge success. Uh, it gets a standing ovation. But we see Steve missing his quote unquote son, maybe son, uh, Owen Wilson. And he kind of takes to a kid who's out there and stuff. And he talks about how he wants to be friends with Jane's kid when Jane's kid is born. And the very last scene of the movie is the crew reuniting for a new project the next day. And one thing I like about Wes Anderson's movies is that it always has great last lines. So the last line of Life Aquatic is, this is an adventure, which is a good one. And that's Life Aquatic, Brian. Any brief Life Aquatic thoughts before we dive into the weirder 2023 film, Asteroid City? (laughs) Well, I thought it was interesting that this documentary, you know, it's framed as it's a documentary, and yet nonsensical stuff is happening and very, like, larger than life. And, like, everything we're seeing is, is not a real thing. It's all very carefully constructed. Yeah, it's kind of meta. And I thought that played well with the stuff we see in Asteroid City. Yeah, I mean, honestly, like the the filmmaking aspect is like not the main focus of the story. It's not like um, about the creative process. It just so happens that that is like the mechanism for the adventure, basically. Um, And yeah, it ends up being quite fantastical, which is kind of fun. Whereas Asteroid City is very much directly about the creative process and like the the making of the film itself. So Asteroid City, it's told in two parts. So one part is in widescreen color, and that is a story about a alien encounter that actually takes place in. I don't know if they say the state. Do they say the state? I don't think so. I think it might be Nevada, but the city is called Asteroid City. And then the second story is about the making of a play. This one's shot in the Academy ratio, so not widescreen, shot in black and white. And it kind of alternates between the two stories. The second half appears to be about the making of a play that is the story of the film that we're seeing with like the actors being actors. And it's just very meta because it's it. other than the fact that the, the color portion is actually shot as an actual movie, you would think that it's the play itself that's being depicted in the other half of the movie. It's 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 a very, it's like a, a Russian nesting doll. I was confused multiple times because what really threw me is so you got these actors playing the characters like actors playing actors playing characters and it kept going back and forth and i wasn't sure what we were supposed to know about their lives outside of the play like do we only need to care about what's happening in the play or is there something about their personalities beyond that world that's important and i was never sure i think it's definitely ambiguous and like open to try you trying to piece it together how you how you want to see it because there there's like a weird thing like where we'll see one character 
in the in the making of one, the play one, the black and white one, we'll see one character talking to another character, but one character is listed as an understudy, and the other character seems to be having an affair with another actor. But it's like, is that related to like what the characters actually are in the play itself? And I don't know. It's it's very you're right. It's it's weirdly layered. It also very much made me think of how Wes Anderson's movies are talked about and how people say, oh, he he always shoots his movies in so and so a way. And so that makes it kind of less interesting. And so here he's kind of spoofing that concept because he shoots the movie in exactly the way that's like kind of a parody of himself because he also is kind of talking about this playwright who is famous, but is also kind of controversial in the making of section. And he even like kind of spoofs some of his own things, like the fact that we almost always see the characters head on when he shoots characters. Like there's a bit where one of the characters has some shrapnel in the back of his head, but you never see the back of his head except the one time he turns to reveal it and stuff. And so for me, what it really made me think of is that famous deception of an image painting that says this is not a pipe in French. It's something like say nay pas un pipe or something. Um, so that for me, I was thinking, say nay pas un film for, for all of Asteroid City. Just imagine me saying that in actual French. Gavin, I'm sorry. But because it was kind of like calling to attention each aspect of the acting and the characters and the performances. And it's like making you think about, oh, is this was this constructed as if it were actually a play like this actor that we see in this other making of segment actually being the actor who plays this character? Or are we supposed to see it more as like a standalone thing? It's very mind bending, Brian. I, I thought it was too much. It was At least it was too much for me to keep track of in the first watch. And, you know, when we talked Titanic, because I always like to bring things back to Titanic, that had a frame story. And we debated, would this movie work with no frame story? I think this movie, Asteroid City, it wouldn't be the same thing, but it would be less for me to have to keep track of if we just nixed this frame story. But then it would be much less interesting, I think. Uh, you're right. It would be a totally different thing. Because uh, it is a good story, although it's much less narratively dense, as we'll see here in a second, than, than Steve Zissou. But what's kind of cool is the playwright is Edward Norton, who is a recurring presence in Wes Anderson movies, also the star of Fight Club. I think here we can say that the cast is just ridiculous. Yeah, because the narrator then is Brian Cranston. And then you have just, it's... Uh, murderers row it's like it's tilda swinton's in there tom hanks is in there scarlett johansson's one of the co-stars what's the name of the guy who was in the elevator movie we watched what's the name of that actor not hugh jackman who else was in that one leave schreiber okay leave schreiber's in there yeah and adrian brody yeah oh jeffrey wright the guy from uh westworld is in there Steve Carell is in there. Matt Dillon. Oh, Maya Hawke was in there. That's right. Um, she plays a teacher. It's got the young guy from Grand Budapest Hotel. Mm -hmm. He shows up. Yeah. Willem Dafoe appears for a scene or two as like this uh, weird acting teacher who gets them into like a hypnosis trance. That's when it really starts to get weird. 
is like they start doing this chant. You can't wake up if you don't fall asleep. That was the bit where I thought maybe I finally understood what it was all about. Okay, so what was it all about? Because I thought that was kind of, and I think one of our Discord members actually wrote this in their review on Letterboxd, but it's like a mission statement for Wes Anderson. It's like, you gotta stop and experience a weird, trippy fantasy movie to, like, move forward with life. It's like, to deal with reality, you got to set aside time to lapse into abstract consideration. Interesting, yeah. You can't wake up if you don't fall asleep. I kind of like that, yeah, because... It, it kind of gets more and more surreal because we also see when they are doing the making of section, it still has that air of artificiality about it that Wes Anderson movies do. It's not like it kind of turns into a docudrama or anything. So that's even like another layer of artifice on top of it. And yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of Wes Anderson accepting that his movies are always going to be this thing that's kind of detached from reality because that's what he thinks makes compelling and gripping stories. So another layer on this one is that there's, so why don't we just talk through it kind of in brief here? We've kind of hit the high points already, but it does take place outside a atom bomb test site, which I wasn't sure quite what to make out of. Is it like, okay, maybe these people are going a little bit crazy and we're like kind of seeing their psychotic fever dreams because they're getting exposed to these radi this radiation, it's just making everything a little bit more weird in like a pseudo space age, almost Twin Peaks sort of way, um, retro futurism style, because you definitely get some retro futurism in this, Brian. Right. I've talked a lot about how I get really into Cold War era stories and like things hearkening back to that era in pop culture. So I liked this. And like I said, on my my list of bullet point, not quite ideas, one is... Do something with living near a nuclear test site. Yeah. So the the story itself, the main section that that's shot in color, by the way, the most really painterly is the word, the only word I can think of to use, because it's like these really light and expressive and but still saturated colors, just a very rich color palette. And all of the compositions are just so precise and almost fussy, but not quite. I really liked it. I think it's just a treat to look at. We get some train stuff um, early on. Um, it really looks not like any other movie I've ever seen. It kind of reminded me of the color scheme of um, Moonrise Kingdom, another one of the Wes Andersons. But this one kind of was more deserty with like a, like the red of Adobe's or whatever you call it in there and um, the sand color, but then the blue sky as well. Yeah, there's a few different pastels of the characters. And and I mean, it's, it's like somehow every color is is a little like distinctive and amplified. So I don't know. I'm sure they were very careful with their color palette. And it's not actually every color, just super intense. But so we basically follow a junior Stark gazer convention in this small town asteroid city where a bunch of the brightest scientific students in the country come and show off this, these inventions they've been working on to try and win a prize. And among those is uh, a boy named Woodrow, whose dad, Augie, played by Jason, Swart Jason Schwartzman, is a photographer. And 
Then you also have Midge, Scarlett Johansson. Um, her daughter is another one of the people there. Her name is the the girl's name is Dinah. The manager of the motel there is Steve Carell. When Tom Hanks shows up, he's Augie's father-in-law. So one kind of important thing here. And I think this kind of aligns with what you're saying about how you need some abstraction and artifice to be able to process something is that um, this is coming in the wake of the death of Augie's wife and therefore Woodrow's mom, who we don't see at all, except we kind of do in the making of section. We see that Margot Robbie was initially cast to play the mom. That was wild because, I mean, several reasons. Suddenly in the last minute of the movie, Margot Robbie's in it. With this monologue, yeah. Also, I mean, they come out of their respective stage doors and they're like on balconies opposite each other. And you can see behind them over to the other side of the street. And it's like all theaters. It's a block of theaters. And they're all showing these made up plays. So it's almost like the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's like this never ends. This this layered illusion just goes on forever like a mirror in a mirror. In some ways, it's even more dreamlike in this making of section than it is in the the actual story itself. Also, you got Margot Robbie in a movie with a nuclear explosion. So it's like peak 2023. You got both <laughs> halves of Barbenheimer. <laughs> Good point. So maybe a third of the way into the movie, this kind of convention is going on. And one of the events is like in the, the night sky, they're going to see this celestial event called an ellipsis, which is like three really bright stars or something like that. And it's kind of like a solar eclipse like we had in 2018 or whatever year that was, 2017. And so they all have to put on these like mirror helmets to that are like just boxes around their heads so that they're not looking directly at it. But they all do that and they see these three dots and then a fourth dot appears and the fourth dot is a green light and the light gets bigger and bigger and it turns out to be this UFO that for like a minute here turns everything which had this very precise and controlled color scheme into just oversaturated neon green for a couple of minutes here. And this stop motion alien comes out and takes this asteroid rock that was kind of the centerpiece of the town and takes it and flies away. And Augie, remember, Jason Schwartzman is a photographer and he captures a picture of the alien before it, it flies away. So, Brian, what did you think of this, this scene here? Any, any thoughts on this one? Yeah, this was wild. So already we're dealing with multiple layers of what's supposed to be real. But like even within this story and a story, I wasn't expecting this. It seemed like it was beyond the rules of what had been established so far that now suddenly we've got this cartoon alien. But I liked it. I'm never going to say no to a cartoon alien. Yeah. And that's who Jeff Goldblum plays. He's credited with that, but the, how? what does he actually do? Does he provide the noise or, or what is it? So I don't think he was inside the alien that we see in the, the color sequence. Like, I think that was just a stop motion thing. But then backstage, we see Jeff Goldblum take off the head. Like he steps out and he takes it off and he's like, oh, I'm... I'm... Life finds a way. I don't know what he said. What does Jeff Goldblum usually say? Whatever he, he says. But that's right, because that's an extra funny element, because in this whole, like, again, Hall of Mirrors thing that we have going on here, because 
Yeah, he's very clearly stop motion, but then in the backstage story, he's actually played by a person. So take what you will from that. So because of the alien encounter, the U.S. government comes in and tells everyone they have to stay here in a quarantine. So now all of a sudden, this is also a COVID movie, Brian, because everybody's stuck in quarantine. Yep. So two things about this. To step back a second to the astronomical event that heralds the arrival of the alien... They call this like a solar ellipse instead of a solar eclipse because it's a it's a dot 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 in the sky. So it's the you know, the stars form an ellipsis. Yeah, very poetic too, I thought. I liked I liked that. But then also, yeah, this quarantine that comes about and now everybody's tension is gonna come to the surface. Like people will sit tight for a while, but then their blood's gonna boil. Right. I wonder if every great filmmaker is going to have their their movie to process COVID, which is clearly not the only thing that Wes is confronting here. But Brian, another comparison that you brought to my attention is Nope, which is I take it you saw that the movie from last year about aliens also. I haven't actually seen it, but I listened to the buzzed on movies episode detailing it and then i read the wikipedia summary so i consider myself an expert (laughs) but it definitely seems to have some similarities and you can confirm or deny but they're both like out in this rustic setting like i think in nope it's a ranch and here it's this desert town but like wide open skies in the american west and they're making a movie and they're dealing with aliens or it's like it was a movie ranch in in nope it had been used for making movies and you've got the steven yoon character who has a background in show business and is like trying to profit off the alien and everybody being brought together and then the alien coming down and it's more than that too because it's a big uh, image in Nope is looking up at the alien is what angers it. So the alien doesn't like if you look up at it. And we get the image here in Asteroid City also of everyone looking up at it. And in Nope, there's a lot of different interpretations. It's like it's really interesting creature design. And in one of its forms, it looks very much like a human eye. So a circle with a dark circle at the middle that kind of goes and like looks almost as if it's like looking flies right up to various subjects of the movie, various characters within the movie. So it's like a proxy for the lens of like uh, humans kind of voyeuristically taking in uh, the world of movies. And in particular, it's kind of critical of like exploitation within movies of, cause it's, a, it's got a, it's, it's by Jordan Peele. So it definitely has like a racial and class element to it because the main characters are black talking about how black people are, are undercredited in filmmaking and a couple, a couple other things kind of going on there. There's also the animal aspect of it because it's kind of, there's this flashback of um, a chimp going crazy, uh, a showbiz chimp going crazy, which is parallels some real life stories that have happened. Yeah. It's the Travis, the chimp movie. When I heard that, I was like, that wasn't in the trailer. How did I miss this? But yeah. And I mean, this is kind of just me, being an idiot but the first time i saw jeffrey wright in this movie in asteroid city the actor from westworld i thought it was jordan peele and so i was like i was making connections that weren't actually there but i definitely saw parallels to nope 
Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. He does kind of look like him. And then meanwhile, the the UFO looks a little bit like a camera lens here in Asteroid City, I thought, like a, the kind of the hexagonal shutter of a camera. And then the kids kind of get together and like they're determined in the name of science to get the photograph that he took of the alien out there. And so they kind of band together and eventually they succeed in doing that, which causes like a national frenzy of the aliens. And so they're about to lift the quarantine, but then the alien comes back and drops the asteroid. So we see him come back. And so now they have to like fight against the military because the military wants to do another quarantine down. So here I was thinking like Wes Anderson's being sympathetic with the the anti-quarantine COVID crowd because it kind of felt a little bit like that. That's what I was thinking, like the the Canadian truck protesters, because once the, the alien comes back again, they were about to open it all up because the kids, they beamed out that aliens were happening. They sent out the photo on the wire because they hacked the telephones or something. And so then everybody's set up like a perimeter. The, re- the rest of civilization outside the bubble has set up a perimeter and they've got like an alien theme park and they're selling alien t-shirts. And then the alien comes back again and the government says, actually, we're not gonna discontinue the quarantine. And everybody explodes. The ki- there's people like f- fighting each other and flying around on jetpacks. And with their science gadgets and stuff, yeah, that the kids invented. And so the movie ends with the military kind of uh, having left and reopening the camp because everybody fought back against it. And Augie wakes up and realizes that he kind of missed his connection with Midge because all along this whole time he was kind of connecting with Midge as their kids were also connecting. So it kind of had this parallel romance that was going on in the background, too. And then this is kind of cleverly mirrored in the uh, the making of section because there's when he goes and talks to Margot Robbie, we learn that he missed his cue to go back on stage for the last scene. And so that's why he didn't appear. So there was supposed to be another scene with like this Scarlett Johansson character further, like enhancing this weird, like nested doll hall of mirrors, like what is informing what layers that I just found deeply fascinating. But yeah. And so that's uh, Asteroid City. The The last line of Asteroid City, by the way, is another atom bomb test. It's back in Asteroid City when they're uh, driving off, which to me just highlights that we're in a weird postmodern society where there are no rules about what can happen in a universe like this. All right, Brian, we made it through two Wes Anderson movies. So just any, any other further thoughts on... Uh, Asteroid City or Life Aquatic? Just broadly that I have a lot of respect for Wes Anderson doing his own thing. Especially with Asteroid City, I got the impression that this is a guy who can write his own ticket. Like, he's not beholden to anybody. Like, nobody nobody can go up to Wes Anderson anymore and say, are you sure? He's sure. That's what he's doing. No, no question. I agree. People have said that he's, like, gone quote-unquote too far up his own ass and there is an aspect of that like he really does lean on his own fascinations i guess like oh french film wow how original wes tell us some more about how you like french movies especially if you go watch the french dispatch in particular that one really feels beholden to old french movies but then like half of his movies do that and i don't know yeah it's um i like that he kind of does his own thing and with each subsequent film i'm excited to see what it's going to be so the, his next one, I think, is going to come out in 2025 or 2026, and it's 
apparently starring Michael Sarah, and I think also Jeff Goldblum. And I'm like, oh, I'm all in. I don't know what it's going to be, <laughs> but just whatever it is, I'm excited about it. They're going to so. have to make the poster big enough to fit all the names. <laughs> yeah, it's probably going to be another huge cast. It was it was reaching the limits this most recent one. Maybe he'll zag and only have like a three person film for his next one. A, a Wes Anderson bottle episode. So are we ready to determine, is it good? Yeah, why don't we do that? So is it good is our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight-point goodness scale, ranging from very not good, which is a one out of eight, to our masterpiece rating toward a good, which is an eight out of eight. So Brian, I will ask, is The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou good? I really like this one. The idea of striking out on the sea is cinematic and you know, even just any ocean voyage you take, you're going to kind of be leaving civilization behind. But here, they're heading out into this, like, surreal area. Just abandoning the normal rules. And the animals are a little unnatural. And the conflicts they encounter are, are comedic, but also over the top. I'm going to land just into 7 out of 8 exceptionally good that's a high rating yeah exceptionally good i i you know i was ready to give one lower for each of our movies but your enthusiasm has sold me and i think for for me this one this is up there i i really liked it um not as good to me as moonrise kingdom moonrise kingdom gets an eight if i haven't said that but this is a filmmaker and a whole team of filmmakers having fun Absolutely, yeah. Where are you at? So I'm going to give this one a very good, a 6 out of 8. I really like it too. I was a little cold on it throughout. It just felt like a little stuffy. And I wasn't vibing with it. It just felt like kind of not quite as sharp as Wes normally is. But I kind of really cottoned to it in the second half a little bit more. And so um, I was actually feeling pretty excited about it and, and really enjoying its twists and turns and like, roused by the final appearance of the jaguar shark and all that and deeply saddened by the passing of owen wilson's character so i I think it's a messier and slightly too long it's like the longest of his movies it's almost two hours another great thing about wes anderson all of his movies are short all of them are less than two hours if i'm not mistaken and i think that shows a little bit but i still think it's really sharp and inventive and just uh, a lot of fun a lot of cleverness and just kind of dealing with a lot of themes in a really nuanced and clever way while still having this really distinct coming to life visual schema with the all the colors and the designs of the the props and the boats and the uh, the Henry Selleck uh, stop motion of the creatures. Um, very cool. Oh, and something we didn't say is that when they rescue Jeff Goldblum and everybody is united on the one vessel, Jeff Goldblum says, wait a minute, is that my <laughs> coffee maker? <laughs> like the most inconsequential piece of equipment. So well, you yeah, but their ruse has been revealed at the last moment. At the very end. That was funny. Yeah, I forgot that. Yeah. All right. Now on to Asteroid City, Brian. So is Asteroid City from 2023 good? So I have to give this one a little bit of a disclaimer. I'm going to give it a high five because I was very confused and I immediately wanted to watch it again to see if I got it more. I think probably the right rating is a six, but 
I spent $20 to watch this movie. It's the very first one that I've done the like premiere, you know, on streaming Mm -hmm. where it's like, if it's a brand new movie, you can pay the the high amount to watch it. I've never done that before. I don't know if I'll ever do it again. The other option was sign up for a free trial of Peacock, but knowing me, I would probably forget to turn it off. And so that was the value calculation and it wasn't, worth it to me spending another $20 right away. Well, I'm sorry, Brian, that I didn't mean to make you spend $20 on watching a movie. No, that's okay. I feel like there's there's more to be mined here. Like, don't take my rating as a, an authoritative evaluation. Like, I, I need to watch it again because it's dense. It's so dense and it's it's very indulgent. It's an indulgent movie and I think that holds it back for me a little bit. I think when I understand it more, it's probably a very good, but I, I land in the highest of fives right now. What about you? For me, this is an exceptionally good. It's a seven out of eight. I really love this movie. Um, it's like I said, it just, it had me thinking so hard about like all of the weird stuff that it's doing between its two parallel stories where one is the making of the other, but not exactly just close to it. And it's, it's very intriguing. And like, it then makes every layer just a little richer because you're now thinking about its construction. But I would say the flip side of that is like, it's not quite as emotional a story because it's more like intellectual and cerebral and less emotional than I think Wes's best stuff is like Rushmore and Moonrise Kingdom. And then I haven't seen it since it came out, but um, the Grand Budapest Hotel, a lot of people think is his masterpiece and that's one I need to revisit. But Um, I remember that one having a strong emotional through line as well. You know what? I actually saw Grand Budapest Hotel also. I I didn't get that one either. I got to watch it again. Okay. Yeah. I want to see that one again too. So surprised we got this far without me even mentioning that as as probably his most acclaimed at this point. But anyways, for me, it's it's probably my favorite movie of the year so far. Either that or number two behind... um, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret, which is just an absolutely lovely coming of age story, but just an absolutely terrific and uh, smart and goofy and visually decadent. And you see, it's so fun to look at, so painterly to use a word I've ever used this podcast. Um, and it's got Tom Hanks, who you know I love, and just this huge cast. And a couple of moments did get me, like the Margot Robbie scene just felt like I, it didn't quite click and like intellectually what it was trying to do but it just felt like it was kind of pulling it all together into like uh i'm processing this all this strangeness of life around me whether that's death whether that's covid whether that's just the weirdness of postmodern life in a post-atomic age not clear but that's that's the moment that it kind of coalesces for me towards the end is that conversation with margot robbie so exceptionally good seven out of eight and probably on the upper half of exceptionally good not quite a masterpiece but I absolutely love it. So, Something I thought was interesting is that there's a lot of kids in Asteroid City. Mm-hmm. So there's the group of like teenagers who do the science fair, but then there's also a group of younger kids who get brought to like, you know, be the audience, basically. Mm-hmm. And so obviously lots of kids also in Moonrise Kingdom, but something that recurred between Steve Zissou and asteroid city is a mention of 11 going on 12 like 
um, Owen Wilson said he wrote a letter to Steve when he was 11 going on 12. And then when Owen Wilson dies at the end, Kate Blanchett is like, well, in 12 years, my my fetus will be 11 going on 12 with the implication being he'll he'll write you a letter then. Right. And then in Asteroid City, I don't remember exactly when it happened, but there was discussion of like being 11 and a half. Oh, man. And so I was wondering, like, that must be important. Yeah, to Wes. Yeah. This like the, the coming of age, the like early, you know, the preteen years, something about that resonates with with Wes Anderson. Right. Yeah, it must be. I don't know. I like that. That's a good connection. There is a lot of through lines like that in his movies. If you watch them, uh, especially I watched three this week. So I well, four, because I also rewatched Asteroid City. So, yeah, that's good. Good observation there, Brian. So but what are we going to be watching next week, Brian, for uh, I think we're coming up towards the end of our dedicated two months of movies about making movies. So what is this one going to be? Yeah, we're we're marching ever onward. I think we've got, if we do the full nine, I think we've done six of nine now. Mm-hmm. So the what I want to cue up next is another movie that would work about making plays. It's going to be another one from Tim Burton, who we saw in my last selection. Stars Johnny Depp. And it is Ed Wood a biopic of the filmmaker who made Z-grade schlocky films in the 1950s, such as Plan 9 from Outer Space, which I am also going to assign. Oh, okay. So, Ed Wood and Plan 9 from Outer Space. That's awesome. I'm glad. I was hoping we would do one where it's about the making of a movie and then the movie itself, because I don't think we've had one of those yet. Unless you count Asteroid City as both of those pieces, which it kind of is. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to do that too. And actually, spoilers, my my last two episodes of the month are both going to do that. Oh, cool. Cool. All right, Brian. Well, I'm looking forward to it and I'll see you next week. Yeah, this was fun. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Join us again next time on The Goods. Yeah.